they don't think about sex and then want to go and find it. Sometimes mm-hmm. people don't even start thinking about it until their body is already partially there. There is this great example. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was having a birthday party and she was telling me about it. I was so excited, ready to go. And then the evening of the party came and it'd been a long day at work. And I thought, I'm just going to send her a quick text and say, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. And as I pick up my phone to write that text message, she sends me a picture from the venue. It's all set up. She's so so excited. Can't wait for you to get here. And then I'm like, oh, I can't disappoint her. I can't say no. So I tell my family, just one, I'm just going to go for an hour, maybe a drink, and then I'll be home really quickly. And it two o'clock in the morning rolls around and I'm surrounded by her and all of our other friends. And we're just sitting there having a great time saying, oh my God, this is so great. We should do this more often. And for a lot of people, that's what a responsive sexual desire is. It's not that you don't have the desire. It's there, but sometimes you have to get your body to be in it first before your mind is, oh yeah, I like this. In a fast-paced world, many of us struggle with overthinking and worry that leaves us feeling overwhelmed or stuck. In this podcast, we will hear stories of successful individuals and have conversations and ways to reach our true potential by embracing every micro-detail of our identity, especially the flaws that make us unique. This is your host, Maria Grace Wolk. I'm a Filipina-American entrepreneur, psychotherapist, and mom of two boys. And my mission is to amplify diverse perspectives and experiences and inspire your journey to wellness and fulfillment. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm so happy that you're joining us in this episode as I have a special guest with me, my good friend, Dr. Emily Fessler. She is a beacon of knowledge in the realm of fostering healthy relationships, and promoting emotional intimacies. In this conversation, Emily will unravel the mysteries of closeness and connections in relationships, shedding light on a topic often left unexplored. I am so excited that she's here, and I am so excited that you're here for this enlightening conversation. So let's dive right in. Emily, again, thank you so much for being here. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, and I am just, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. But I am Emily Kahumoku Fessler. I am a Native Hawaiian and Irish woman. I'm in academia. I'm a psychotherapist. I am a wife. I'm a mother of four. So I am in Houston, Texas. Uh, Mm -hmm. faculty in the marriage and family therapy program at the University of Houston, Clear Lake. And then I also own a private practice called Therapy Co. And it has been so fun to be able to be a faculty member teaching future marriage and family therapists and Mm -hmm. be a practitioner at the same time. It's been fun practicing in such a large metro area where I trained was rural Alabama, basically, but it's just in the middle of the state and in a small to medium-sized college town. And so the opportunities for things like internship and practicum there, there was one place you worked at family services and and here there's such cool opportunities for our students. We've got people working in 
private practices and specializing in sex therapy or art mm-hmm. therapy. I've got some former students that have all gotten together and created their own private practice. It's called Therapy and Co. Houston. Yeah. They are doing amazing things. They're doing virtual reality therapy to help people address some phobias. So okay. I'm a tenured professor, I spent a year doing a stint as the program director and I realized managing people is not for me, but mm. I love teaching. I love teaching and I love doing therapy. So if I get to do those two things, I'm a happy girl. And I think over the course of years, that whole professional training piece I figured mm. if I want to be able to make it as a private practitioner, I've got to appeal to everyone. And I've learned over time that I just need to be exactly who I am and I will repel the people I'm supposed to repel and attract the clients I'm supposed to attract. And I was just thinking in the last week, I was looking at my schedule of the clients that I'm seeing. I'm like, dang, I really do enjoy everybody on my schedule. I don't have a single person that I'm looking at. And I'm like, oh, them yeah. again. Which is so wonderful. I feel like everybody wants that from their own therapist to enjoy. They want to enjoy working with their therapist, but they also want their therapist to enjoy working with them. So it's been a ton of fun. I love that. Yeah, I agree. I agree because all my client, my my client load right now, I'm excited to see them. Yeah. Really, it's like when you know your niche and you are passionate about it, you really, you attract those clients that really need your help and they, it gives you energy, right? It's almost just like a, a reciprocating energy exchange. Absolutely. So most of the work that I do, I work a lot with couples. I'm a marriage and family mm-hmm. therapist, but I also specialize in sex therapy and mm-hmm. man, being a sex therapist, people have such strange ideas about what it is that you do, but mm-hmm. often it's really working through high conflict with couples that are struggling. People fight about the same things. They fight about money. They fight about sex, they fight about kids. And recently in the past 10 years or so, they've also started to fight about use of technology. You're always on your phone or who are you texting or whatever else. And so being a sex therapist, doing sex therapy is rarely, I mean, it is very fun, but it's rarely Cosmo magazine style sex tips. And more often it's working through just the intricacies and the details of splitting up domestic labor or feeling heard and known by your partner. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what led you to specialize in sex therapy. It is definitely not what I thought I was going to do. So I grew Mm. up, my native Hawaiian father I think like many kind of Asian Pacific Islander families, the idea was you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to go to Stanford and you'll be a doctor. And so that was always the thought. And it wasn't until I got into, actually got into early acceptance medical school and hated a lot of it. Mm. But I had this one amazing, she was actually a graduate teaching assistant at the time. I really should reach out to her because she was so integral in the trajectory of my career and probably has no idea. So Paige Heiser at Texas Tech (laughs) University, you are wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, She taught the human sexuality class and she Mm. was a doctoral student in marriage and family therapy. And I just loved everything about how she taught, how she thought about the world. And I was like, I really think this is what I want to do. And so I went on to get a PhD in human development and family studies and knew that I wanted to 
work with couples and be in LMFT and do sex therapy. But I think I started by working in rape crisis in Lubbock, Texas, and then Mm -hmm. went to graduate school in Auburn, Alabama. And I ended up working with incarcerated youth that were sex offenders and it's just grown. So I've worked in kind of the sex area of therapy for a long time. And I, it's amazing how interconnected it all is. Working with offenders or survivors are often one and the same. Tell us about, I mean, offenders Mm -hmm. and the survivors. I think I was surprised to find that most of the offenders that I worked with were also survivors of sexual abuse. And in my head early on in my immature and unsophisticated Mm -hmm. way of thinking about the world, there were the people that were hurt and the people doing the hurting, but more often it's more similar than not. And really it's about helping people go back to whatever the emotional space was around what happened to them and organize it and help them either show up for themselves in the way that they needed the adults in their lives to, or even sometimes just talking about it and getting it out of their body. Gosh, you talked to this wonderful woman whose name is escaping me right now, but she talked about vicarious trauma and she talked about You've got to name it and tame it and tame reframe it. it. That's that like Jenny. <laughs> yes, it was Jenny. I loved it. And that's what I do in sex therapy all the time. Like mm-hmm. let's name it to tame it. And then let's reframe it because a lot of the times your body keeps the score, right? It remembers yeah. the things that happen. And so it's really hard to function as a sexual adult when you've got some trauma in the past. Absolutely. We know that most uh, most offenders have been victims themselves, and that's mm-hmm. why they just repeat the cycle if they don't get any proper treatment. Had a sexual trauma early on in your life, you mm-hmm. try to do things to protect yourself so that doesn't happen again. But often those protective behaviors, they have a light side and a dark side, right? Mm-hmm. And the light side is when it actually works as a protective behavior. But the dark side is when that protective behavior reiterates the same circumstances that mm-hmm. can eventually lead to another assault type situation. Yeah. Uh, you think about, or if you have your clients think about, or for whoever's listening, if they think about the messages that they received about sex and sexuality early on in their life, and then how that has impacted their sexual selves and then who they are sexually now. We're probably talking about three totally different stories. I know for me, I was born in 84 and my dad was in the military. So we moved all over, but I spent a lot of time in like the Southern US and the Bible Belt. And it was very much abstinence only. Wait, mm-hmm. sex is something bad and terrible that you shouldn't do until you're married. And then it's wonderful and lovely. And it's like the fairy tale, like Cinderella, when they say, and they mm-hmm. lived happily ever after. Like you never get the information of what actually happens. Right. I don't know if you are a television watcher, but in Bridgerton, like in the very first, yes. the uh, first season, season, the mom is trying to talk to her daughter who's getting married about sex. And it's this really vague, like 
garden and flowers and she thinks she knows what she's receiving and then she ends up having to talk to one of the housemaids and like what specifically is to happen <laughs> what is the garden <laughs> what, yes, is the yes. what is the garden what and I feel like we don't have really explicit conversations and I'm not saying that it's the way that it needs to be but how do we expect people to develop healthy sexual selves if they have no idea what sex is even like. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit, I never got any talks. I If you learn from watching television and movies. That's what you picture. Yeah, that's, that's what what's... you picture. And man, and think about the youth now, they're learning from porn. It's so sad. It scares me. It really, it scares me if that's, it's what they watch is what they're going to get fixated on, right? Because they don't know anything else. Yeah, um, and, and a lot, the, I feel like the most mainstream and accessible porn isn't really indicative of what an actual sexual experience looks like. And so, man, yeah. we have all of these kids just like making noises and <laughs> going fast and bouncing around. That's not fun uh, for anybody. What are some of the common misconceptions or stigmas surrounding this field? Every now and then people will ask, people in my life will ask me specific questions, but most people don't that know me really well. Instead, it's people that I'll just randomly meet at my husband's mm. like work party or a mixer or other things. And they've mm. been so funny because I always have to go in my head, like, do I tell people that I'm a sex therapist? Do I just say I'm a professor? Do I say something else? And depending on the context, I'll say different things, but almost always, if I bring up that I'm a sex therapist, somebody later will ask, will be like, Hey, can I ask you a question? Mm. And and I'm sure people have a lot of questions because like we were talking about, we never yeah. got any information growing up. We still don't. And for those of us who don't watch a lot of TV or we have a lot of things unanswered, especially being married and trying to keep that passion alive, right? Um, so a lot of people just have no idea what a sex therapist is, often confused at with sex workers, which is totally different, totally different field. And there's even like, we talked about my green velvet couch that I have in my office yeah. that I love, but I, I love it. Yeah. Thank you. I purposefully got it because it is a little bit uncomfortable and it is definitely not a couch you can lay down on. Right. Mm -hmm. I want people to know, like there will be no sex acts happening in this room. I don't need to see what you're doing. I don't need you guys to act it out for me, but really we're just working on the dynamics in your relationship that get in the way of you wanting and being able to connect sexually. It's funny. Almost everybody uses like the word intimacy instead uh -huh. of using <laughs> instead of sex or intercourse. And man, intimacy is a part of it, right? But they're also distinct things. Like you can be intimate with a friend, but not yeah. with them. So that intimacy piece is about knowing someone and feeling known by them, but which again, can be a big part of the sex part, but can also be totally separate. And so, but yeah, people have just a lot of misconceptions about what it, what sex therapy means, or they're in, embarrassed about it. I remember my first practice that I started was housed within an OBGYN clinic because it seems like people would be less embarrassed to go to a medical yeah and park in that parking lot than they would to oh. be going to a sex therapist. But, and yeah, it's funny. Every now and then someone will ask me for a business card and I'm like, 
listen, I haven't had business cards in 15 years. Who no has business cards? In? <laughs> business card that says sex therapist on it, but mostly sex therapists are working in conjunction with medical doctors. Sometimes it's physiological stuff that's going on, but a lot okay. of times it's psychological stuff that's going on. And man, if you can name it to tame it and reframe it, it is such satisfying and quick work. If you can help people get it out, get out whatever is going on inside of them, that's keeping them from being able to connect or enjoy themselves or enjoy being sexual with their partner. Once we can name it, it, the taming it happens really quickly. And that's such a fulfilling part of this job is when couples are able to connect and look at each other and smile and giggle and give that knowing look across the couch to each other. And that's perfect. I don't need to know. I don't want to know what you guys are talking about, but I love that you're giving <laughs> the look right now. But so when a couple, and also I, I get couples, oh, well, I get individuals, adults in my private practice who struggles with with their partner, whether they don't have that same. Yeah. If your sex drive and your partner's sex drive doesn't align, there is a woman, her name is Emily Nagowski, and she has a book, hands down the best book on female sexuality that I think exists. It's called come as you are, but she talks about this in such an eloquence and easy to digest way. So I'm going to talk about it using her framework. I'm definitely going to do it a disservice, but she talks about, there are two types of sex drives. There Mm -hmm. is a spontaneous sex drive Mm -hmm. and then more of a responsive sex drive. And what we see in the movies is spontaneous. It is I'm in a rowboat with Ryan Gosling and then it starts raining and like, we want to rip each other clothes off. Like we just have this idea that we're, that we want sex and then our body follows and tries to find it. And it's just not the dominant way that people (laughs) tend to behave for a lot of people. They don't think about sex and then want to go and find it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. people don't even start thinking about it until their body is already partially there. There is this great example And I'll tell this story to clients all the time. And I'll say a few weeks ago, a friend of mine was having a birthday party and she was telling me about it. I was so excited, ready to go. And then the evening of the party came and it'd been a long day at work. And I thought, I'm just going to send her a quick text and say, sorry, I'm not going to be able to make it. And as I pick up my phone to write that text message, she sends me a picture from the venue. It's all set up. She's so so excited. Can't wait for you to get here. And then I'm like, oh, I can't disappoint her. I can't say no. So I tell my family, just one, I'm just going to go for an hour, maybe a drink, and then I'll be home really quickly. And it two o'clock in the morning rolls around and I'm surrounded by her and all of our other friends. And we're just sitting there having a great time saying, oh my God, this is so great. We should do this more often. And for a lot of people, that's what a responsive sexual desire is. It's not that you don't have the desire it's there, but sometimes you have to get your body to be in it first before your mind is, oh yeah, I like this. Oh my gosh. It's just like running. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I am so continuously impressed by you. I think the last time I was on social media, you were well into the 900s mm-hmm. of your day streak of running every day. And I'm just like, I love it. I love the perseverance. I love that you have been healthy enough to run every day for 
getting close to three years. Oh my God. I know. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. But that, yeah, but that totally makes sense, right? It's any, it's like any activity that you need to remember that it's going to be great in the end. Yes. (laughs) Right. And I use car metaphors a lot, even though I don't know a lot about cars, but we always talk about the sex drive. Think about the accelerator moving forward, but we don't ever Mm -hmm. talk about the sex break, right? And if you are, if you're in your car and your foot is slammed on the brake, it doesn't matter how much you press on the accelerator, you're not going anywhere. And in fact, you're just going to burn out your engine. Right. So sometimes it's not just working on the sex drive piece, but it's figuring out how to get our foot off the brake so that when we press on the accelerator, we're actually going to go places. Can you just say more about that? (laughs) (laughs) But what are the barriers that are getting in the way of you actually wanting to participate in sexual activity? Mm -hmm. Like we talk about turn ons, right? But what about turn offs? And it's funny, there are a lot of similar turn offs. And If we think about a typical date night, if you ask a couple that's been together for a while, what do you do on date night? Mm -hmm. Almost everybody's going to say some version of, oh, we'll go to dinner and a movie and, and all of that is wonderful. But for most people, if you are full after having a dinner, that is not, you do not feel sexy. Mm -hmm. So why are we waiting till the end of a date night, after dinner, after a movie, when we're exhausted to try and connect sexually. That is a failing plan. So I have this very crass way of talking about this with clients. And I'm like, I would like for you to consider for one week incorporating what I like to call the fuck first rule, meaning on date nights, have sex before you go out to dinner. Um, She seems so out of the... Like that doesn't seem like that's how it's supposed to go, but you know, like you're fresh, you're, you've gotten ready for the dates. You're not exhausted. You're not full. And then you find the time to connect. Now the pressure's off. And now Mm -hmm. you're asking in the afterglow of all of those feel good hormones and endorphins of being able to have that sexual connection. And it ends up being great for a lot of people. Thanks for bringing that up, the turnoffs, because you're right. There is a lot of things that even the little things can you can trigger that not tonight and having sex first before you go out. It does. It like sets up the date mode on, right? Because now you're connected, like you said, and you feel good because you're not bloated and you're not wasted <laughs> or yeah. whatever but then you it builds on from that connection you go and have a good conversation because then the conversation is even more intimate because you just yes. had sex right and then when you go home you might even you might do it again which yeah. right <laughs> and when you, if that happens you're doing it because you feel so connected and wonderful not because it feels like well it's the pressure of it. You it's date night it. and we have a babysitter and, you know, yeah. I'd really like to just go to sleep. And so it gets a lot of the barriers out of the way, but yeah. yeah. So when I talk about the sexual break, it's what are the things that are getting in the way that it, are keeping your foot on the brake of your libido and who knows what it could be. It could be, I'm totally touched out by the kids who constantly need things for yes. me. It could be my boss wrote me this shitty email and now it's all I can think about it could be, I don't feel great in my body right now, or it could be, I don't feel great about your body right now. Thinking about your partner, who knows what it is, but 
often the things that are making us push our foot down on the break are things that are really difficult to discuss. And sex is difficult to discuss anyway. And so it never gets addressed. And then people think that they have a libido problem, but that's not really it. They'd like to have sex. They'd like to connect, but it's getting naming, taming, and reframing all of the mm-hmm. things that are getting in the way that are making you keep your foot just right on the floor when it comes to pressing the brakes. I see. Yeah, that totally makes sense because if you don't know what's turning you off, you wouldn't know, you would just self-blame. And I do feel like there's a lot of societal expectation that, oh, you're, you want to feel like they're dating you again. Mm-hmm. You have to go mm-hmm. on the date first and then you get intimate. Yeah. You're reliving those moments when you were dating. It it has to come naturally. It has to be organic. But yeah, you can't get yourself to be in that mood. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said that because I've been working a lot lately with couples that have been together for a long time. Yes. 10 plus years. And one of the things that we talk about is planning for sex. I used to say scheduled sex and everybody would give me the same like cringe ick face because no one wants to schedule sex. They want it Mm -hmm. to be spontaneous or organic. And Mm -hmm. I do, I love everything about that. However, if you're waiting for it to spontaneously and organically happen when you've both got careers and you're taking care of children or pets or your house or the mortgage or your friends or your family, it's anything important you Mm. schedule, you schedule dentists or going to the gym or getting your oil changed or whatever else. Like, why would you not plan sex? Sex. Yeah. It could be so great. There could be such a great way to get couples on the same page. If I can get them to agree to plan for it and they can think about it, then they can come up with creative ways to help each other. One of my favorite examples is this couple that I worked with, they had five young kids and it was just impossible. They couldn't even Mm. get a babysitter to watch their five young kids. And so we finally got to a point where um, they came up with this great plan and he worked outside of the home. She worked inside of the home, taking care of the kids. So on their planned sex days, he would leave for work early And she would make sure to have an afternoon activity that was outside, swimming, something that was going to make the kids extra tired. He would come home early. They'd make a big old bowl of mac and cheese, just like carby, warm, Mm -hmm. delicious goodness that the kids all love, but also helps them ease into an earlier bedtime. But they started working as a team to get the kids down. And then it felt, yes, we worked as a team and we did this well, like high five. And then they were able to have time for date night, time for sex, time for whatever. And it was such a great thing for them. We came up with that plan. And I mean, within a month, they were done coming to therapy because they had figured out what they needed to get the barriers out of the way so they could connect. It's really just shifting your mindset on how you view scheduled sex. Because I think a lot of the misconception of scheduling sex is that, oh, do we have to schedule? Am I not attractive enough that you won't be spontaneously wanting it? You know what I mean? It's just like all those different negative barriers. Those are barriers that we totally made up in our heads, right? Yes. (laughs) 
just because you're planning for it or you're scheduling it doesn't mean you can't send flirty text messages back and forth all day. It's not, it's not like a dentist appointment where you're doing your life and then you just show up and now it's time for your exam. Like yes. you can schedule it and then plan for it all day. Yeah. Which is so much more fun because then, you know, you're going to have to get naked and have this amazing sex. So you want to kind of prep for it. Like maybe you'll wear your nice, cute yeah. little lingerie yeah. underneath all day just to prep yourself up. Maybe you'll eat just salad too. <laughs> no. And being able to have that preparation for those who are perfectionists, for those who are, who wants to have that experience of more like the notebook experience, right? If they, as if that's how they, if yeah. that's how they like their sex to be, then they can prepare for it if they schedule it because you're not, it's not just something you have to do. It's more like you're prioritizing it and that's why you're scheduling it. It has nothing to do with the lack of attraction towards one another, right? Absolutely. It's, I mean, think about the last time you went on vacation, probably had to plan for it, right? Correct. And if you did plan for it, it went a lot better than if, I mean, it'd be great if we could just spontaneously say, ah, screw it, let's go to the beach today. Mm-hmm. Forget all our work obligations and domestic obligations and family obligations. But for most couples, especially when you've been together for some time, you have and to- And if you have kids. Yes, yes, absolutely. You've got to plan for it if you want it to happen. And I think when we can just get over that mental speed bump of planning it means it's not going to be good. Get over that, just start planning it. It can be so good. These are amazing tips because I hear it all the time. I hear the, I feel unseen, unwanted, undesired, when really those are, that could just be your negative thoughts that are coming up because you're not giving each other the time to prepare and plan. Mm -hmm. And when your partner is in the mood and you're not, a lot can happen there, right? There's a lot of like feeling a lot of those things can come up when you're yeah, not aligned, if you're in the in mood, your partner's not, and you try to initiate and then you get rejected. Oh, rejection. That yes. doesn't make you want to initiate again. It makes it's embarrassing. It's shameful. Even when it's with your partner that loves you feeling rejected, we're yes. as a society, we're not good at that. And so, I mean, if you've ever tried to with your partner or your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, decide where to go out to eat one night, like almost always you never want the same thing at the same time. And that's food. You've got to do that three times a day to survive. So how do we expect our partner to want the same thing at the same time with us when it comes to sex? We can't even decide tacos or burgers on a typical night. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I I need to have you on for part two. Can I? (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. I would love that. Okay. But I do want to know about your collaborative work that you're working to create in Houston. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I have owned my practice for years now. I don't know, seven years maybe. And Mm -hmm. during that period of the time, like we've had COVID and the landscape of being a therapist has really shifted. And one of the things that I've realized is, although I love doing online therapy because it get, it's convenient and it's accessible, mm-hmm. sometimes, especially when doing kind of high conflict or sex related therapy with couples, 
I, if we can meet in person, I prefer it. And so I've got an office space, but a lot of therapists, especially if you're starting out, you just Mm -hmm. don't have the resources to get a physical office space. And so I've been in a really great position in that I was able to find a large space with multiple offices. And Mm -hmm. what I really want to do is create a collective where therapists can have kind of a ready to go turnkey high-end office space where they can come in and see clients, but they're not really worried about the startup costs or the overhead and Mm -hmm. the maintenance, they can just show up and use an office maybe three hours a week or four hours a week and not have to have that large expense. And so that is a direction that I'll be going in the very near future is starting the collective at Therapy Co. And the whole purpose of that is it's a place where therapists can have an office space, but also have time to collaborate together. One of the things about being in private practice is it's lonely. Mm-hmm. You can't talk to your spouse or your family or whoever about what you do all day because it's it has to be confidential. That's what makes therapy work. Right, uh, right. But sometimes it's nice to just be able to talk with other therapists and even just sharing space with them or seeing their face. But the expense of maintaining an office can be overwhelming or debilitating earlier on in your career or even later on in your career. And so that's my hope is to create a collective where therapists, Mm -hmm. the space that they need to see clients, but also have space to gather and be together having a work environment. My friends in different industries, they talk about having like their work best friend. And I'm like, man, I mean, I really like my clients, but they, none of them can be my work best friend. Yeah. Talking with a lot of other. Unethical, totally. Yeah. (laughs) And so talking with other therapists, there is a lot of solitude in private practice. So it's just a way I'm hoping to be able to offer the use of space to people who need it just sometimes and offer a way of collaborating with other therapists. Oh, that's amazing. And are you thinking about that office that you're in now? Because your office is beautiful. Oh, thank you. I do. So I've got this office and then there's four more in my suite that all share a waiting room, a little coffee bar, and they each have different vibes to them. And so the idea is if you're part of the collective, you just pay a fee and then you can come in and use whatever office you want. Available. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's amazing. I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Yeah. I think you're right about like just being in a private practice and that solitude while others like to be alone. It can be really hard. And I think that's why a lot of therapists do other things, right? Or just like you, you're a professor, Mm -hmm. right? And so you do that and I'm doing this (laughs) as a way to connect with other therapists, other people, because you're right, it's working on your own can can get can get a little lonely. And so we we get creative and find other ways to meet other people and, and share our knowledge or collaborate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like how we met at the Foundations of Connection Summit in Maui a couple of years ago. I just get so I think I'm probably an extroverted introvert, but whenever I leave those events, I just feel so great and connected with other therapists. And I'd like to be able to have that feeling more often than just a couple of times a year that I fly to one of those events. And so I, know, I love that. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Really? Because I feel like I'm an introvert as well. But when we're with people 
who are like-minded who yeah. are other introverts but maybe extroverts when we're with other introverts <laughs> does that make sense because the there, absolutely thinks, yeah there is something about being around people who are trained similarly to you mm-hmm. that is just so comforting I feel yeah I love that and I love that I met you there that was in Maui mm-hmm. where she spoke and then we met again in Tennessee. Oh, wait, no, Houston first. Houston and then in Tennessee. And that talk in Tennessee, I think about that often. It was just like, I had some kind of important revelations, just uh-huh. hearing the story and just all the stories. And so that's been, that's really helped me focus things as I had another kid and figured out what I want to do practice wise, having that community for other women, other people of mm-hmm. color to be able to thrive as therapists, I think is really important. So that's another mm-hmm. hope for the collective as well, yeah. is yeah. to remove some of the barriers, whether they be in our heads or financial or otherwise, and get people that are trained an opportunity to put it into practice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And when do you think you'll be or where can people find this information? When are you going to start this? So my hope is to start it this summer. I will okay. I will add a tab onto my website for the collective, but my website is just therapyco.net. And yeah, I'm looking forward to just getting more therapists in here. Amazing. Uh, and so one of the things that's different about this than a group practice is there's no percentage fees or cuts or anything like that. This is just a... You pay a set fee so you know what your expenses will be to be able to access the office whenever you need to. So the collective will be small, right? Like we can't have 20 people trying to share four offices. And so really we're looking for people that will be a good fit to the overall vibe and that will really round out the services that we're able to offer to our community. Awesome. For those of you in Houston, you guys are so lucky. And it really is such a great mental health be like area. Being here in Houston has just been so wonderful. All of the opportunities in this large metro area for all the different ways someone could possibly want to practice, I feel, are available here. So it's been pretty amazing. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for giving us all that information. We'll have all of that in the show notes for those of you who are interested and are in the Houston area. But before we go, I know the time went by so fast, but I do, I had to make sure that you share with us your unique, unique name and your story regarding your name. And I was just thinking about that too. But yes, I don't want to run out of time. Please, can you please? (laughs) I will. So I am Native Hawaiian. I had mentioned that. And I have a very long name in Olelo Hawaii or the Hawaiian language. And so I know from the accent that I have, you would not expect it. But like I said, I did grow up in the South mostly. So that's why my voice sounds like this. But my father gave all of us children long Hawaiian names and they tell a story. And so my, I'll tell the whole thing in just a second, but I'm Emily Pearl and I'm my oldest daughter. Her middle name is Pearl as well. That's after my grandmother. So she, the family lived in Pearl city, which is the cliffs surrounding Pearl Harbor. And much like how my 13 year old daughter is shaped now and how I was shaped when I was 13, like she was long and lean and part of 
her job for her family was to shimmy up the trees and shake down the coconuts to sell at market to the soldiers that were close by or whoever in the community. And so on the day of the Pearl Harbor bombing, she was in the tree and saw the planes coming and screamed because of course it's terrifying. And her and the rest of her community all gathered together and watched it happen. And after that, everyone always referred to her as Pearl instead of her name, May. And so the Pearl piece is a really important and special piece to me. And I was so happy that I was able to pass that down to my daughter as well. I love that. Yeah. But so great story. The, the whole name is Emily Pearl Kanoi Lani Maluna Onapali Okono Kuibo Akeli Ikulime Kaini Nomai Mai Kemele Onauna Okahunokuma. Kaikaina Kapiolani Malama Lama Ovaime Mopunu Okioki as Dama. Aloha no Komako Ikapua Okeli Kekwini Nui Okapakapika Kahumoku Fessler. And so I know it it's incredibly long and it tells a whole story. And I remember being a kid and thinking it was weird. And I ended up having an opportunity to go to Kamehameha, which is a school for Native Hawaiian or people of Native Hawaiian descent. And I had this one teacher. He was my Hawaiian culture teacher. His name was Kumukauka. And he would make me say my name in its entirety every day before I was able to come into the classroom. So that's where I learned how to say it. <laughs> and, oh my God. And I was so mad at him at the time. But again, it's one of those, I think that's been a theme for me. I was really mad in my adolescent mm-hmm. years <laughs> about the lessons that I was really grateful for now that I'm an adult. But again, I'm so grateful for that. And my hope is that my children will get an opportunity to learn more about their Hawaiian culture as well. I did not pass down the very long name to my children. I was going to ask you that. Did they have a long name uh, too? My dad helped with my oldest daughter, or with all of them actually. But I told him, I was like, you get one word, one word only. So it's got to be a really good (laughs) one. So they each have Hawaiian middle name, but significantly shorter than the rest of our (laughs) family's Hawaiian name traditions. Yeah, because graduation season, I was just, I just attended a few graduations. And so some people have really long names, but I just kept thinking about you. I'm like, huh, I wonder when Emily graduated, like (laughs) how many times did they have to say your long name? Yeah. So I ended up graduating in Alabama. So they only said Pearl, but my older sister, she graduated from Kamehameha and at her graduation, they said her entire name. Hers is really a little bit longer than mine. And so she had a solid 60 seconds up on the stage wow. after she had walked across to get her diploma where they're just standing there while they finished. Ooh, <laughs> so, I can see that being a tactic so I can get more pictures in for my yeah, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I should have thought of that. But <laughs> weren't you, or was it your sister that was in the world Guinness? She um, was. So my immediately older sister was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the longest middle name early on in her life. I think by the time she was five or six, she no longer held the record. But uh, wow, that's impressive. Impressive. And I think I am sure I'm going to have you on again for hopefully sooner. (laughs) This has been such a fun experience. And I know we've been recording, but I I got lost in the conversation. And so same, but it is, it has been a really neat experience that I've had conflicting opinions about as I've grown up. But now in this place, I am just so proud of my native Hawaiian culture. And I want to learn more and know more and show my children more 
because I think it's just such such an amazing piece that's really, especially in this field, I don't know any other Native Hawaiians. I know other people that have lived in Hawaii, but so I'm hoping that that can be an area that I grow in the future is hopefully being able to get just more Polynesian Pacifica mental health helpers and providers that can serve those communities. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so how can we find you? People have questions, they want to see you. I do consulting. I don't typically do a ton of coaching, but I I think I would potentially be open to it, maybe in the future. I love consulting on couples and sex stuff. It's just, it's my jam. But the best way to find me is just to go to my website. It's therapyco.net. So T-H-E-R-A-P-Y-C-O.net. And there's a contact box and any information you could possibly want. You can get that there. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. And uh, yeah, let's definitely stay connected. We'll stay in touch. This was so fun. Thank you so much. If you resonate at all with the stories on this podcast, and you're thinking about a change in your current situation, in your career, in your relationship, or maybe even in yourself. What's holding you back from taking the first step? Find out by taking the What's Your Biggest Self-Sabotage quiz that you can find on my website at mariagracewolf.com. Until next time, stay kind and own your journey. Thank you again for your time today. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to hit subscribe, rate, and review. I would so appreciate it. The high rate and reviews will help others find the podcast so we can amplify, normalize, and break the mental health stigma. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. This is given with the understanding that neither the host or the guest are providing legal mental health or other professional information. This podcast does not substitute for personal professional services.